Welcome to Grails, a podcast by Alton Insights. My name is John Tunger, and on today's episode, I am talking to Danny Jassy, who's an investment analyst, typically into companies, but also loves to invest in rare whiskey. That's right, we're talking about investing in whiskey as an asset class. Let's get started. Investing in whiskey is actually a really interesting topic because for some reason, it's not really talked about in the collectibles or alternative asset world. And from what you hear today, you'll find that odd, especially when you compare it with something like wine, right? It's a similar asset class. Platforms like Rally have been offering rare wine that you can invest into fractionally. It's sort of like arts in that extremely rich people have been collecting it for a really, really long time. And so why is it not in some of those same conversations? And actually the answer to that is also where we find an opportunity when it comes to investing in whiskey. I love talking to Danny because you'll find that there's a huge information opportunity, right? There's a gap of what it takes to learn about the different whiskeys. You'll hear a bunch of different brand names that you might not know. So I even recommend, you know, pulling out your notes app, or if you have notes, I know I'm looking forward to looking for these whiskeys on the shelf next time I go out. There's just so much to learn about how we can get an edge in this emerging asset class. But first, how do we think about whiskey compared to other asset classes? I might desire a sports car. I might desire certain famous artists just on the basis that they have cachet. You know, you own a Picasso in your home. That's what do you do for work, right? The issue is, is that those are inaccessible, mm-hmm. really, except for all but the wealthiest of you know people, institutions, whatever. So you're seeing this proliferation of these fractionalized markets, Rally Road, Masterworks, and those are great because they allow you to get a slice of this if you're so inclined. Um, whiskey is obviously quite accessible because any person can walk into a store and at least buy that initial bottle of Woodford Reserve, which would be enjoyable potentially to that person. But also pretty much every liquor store now has their little trophy case with very marked up Pappy Van Winkles. There's nothing... There's, there's not a real barrier to walking into pretty much any store and paying $2,000 for a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle. They're everywhere. Mm. So what that does is it creates accessibility. You can actually go buy something that's kind of expensive, but it also creates a desire because you can see the trophy. It's tangible and you want it. Whereas, again, to me, if I say if I close my eyes and visualize a garage, with 18 parking spots, each with a different type of rare portion. It's sort of like not even realistic, you know? So I think the best comparison is really baseball cards because baseball cards are totally accessible. Everyone can go buy them. You can make sort of uh, speculative bets on which teams or players you think are the most interesting or certain collections. Yep. I'm not now you're speaking my you're speaking my language, but (laughs) yeah, you you, I will I'll interview you now. I mean, I'm not very well versed in the uh, card market, but just in thinking about how that would work, the card market certainly has a tighter feedback loop about what's cool and what's valuable because it could be the difference of a single season that determines that. Right. Whereas whiskey has a slow feedback loop because I can tell you what's valuable and cool today, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's highly accessible. But at the same time, there's a total aspirational quality to going to the bar, seeing a bottle that you know you can't realistically afford, 
and going, hmm, it would be sweet to own that one day. And it's just, I don't think that that translates perfectly to baseball. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, right. but it, it's closer. So how is it differentiated? It's differentiated because I think there's more of a, it's more realistic to attain. There's the same amount of uh, lust for the high end, but it's um, it, it, it has different qualifiers in terms of how it would be ultimately gamified in a way where baseball trading cards are or how it would be, you know, symbolically cool, like owning a piece of a Rembrandt on Masterworks. Right. So it, it, it is kind of its own unique slice of the market there. Okay. And so that makes sense a lot, especially for like the lower end. When I say lower end, I mean like you're still going to a bar and you're seeing this, this type of whiskey, but especially when it comes like the higher end of the market, right? So like a lot of these bigger items um, are, you know, are those better investments? Can that, can those be more investable or what are the barriers there? Definitely. I, they definitely can be. And I think if you, if you look at why there is sort of this functional scarcity to something that's old and rare, right? That's not rocket science. But what is different is that at the high end, these things really are more about sort of the trophy collecting element. So again, it is tangible. Like imagine if you were a prolific buyer on Rally Road, would you, you know, invite your close friends over, open up the cigar box and say, check out my Rally Road portfolio? That seems unlikely. Right. But if you have an impressive whiskey collection or even impressive physical like art collection, car collection, you might be tempted to be like, ta-da. Right. So if, if you think about like the ultra high end in in collecting, there still is that um, tangible appeal. But just in terms of will it appreciate? Yes, absolutely. The the high end bottles have appreciated, you know, at double digit growth rates for at least 10 or 15 years. The market is ridiculously young. So it is still a little bit of a TBD on how that persists. And some in some pockets, it may have gotten ahead of itself. But in others, you know, it really is. And, and you know, to the extent that I said that it was closely related to baseball cards, here's an example of where it's more closely related to art. If there's only one such Picasso of a certain type or style, and that's the one that's $75 million, you can apply that same rationale to a particular McAllen or a particular Bowmore or even a particular Stitzel Weller, because it's not like there's a real way of di discerning the difference between a $70 million Picasso and a $120 million Picasso that I'm aware of. Right. So you can apply that same rationale to a truly unique, truly um, notable item and really give it at the risk of sounding silly, like an infinite valuation, because it's really up to the next buyer where that price will be and what's to determine it being higher or lower within any rational you know, boundary. So you're referencing art in regards to whiskey. So, and I asked this question with Scott from Masterworks, how would you think of whiskey in terms of more typical investing? So bonds, growth stocks, you know, are there different types of whiskeys that would be a slow return versus some that would be a quicker return? How, how would you think of it in, in that way? Yeah, that is probably the crux of a lot of discussions occurring right now in that space. So the class itself is growing at high teens, you know, pricing growth over the last 10 years. So I would consider that very attractive, especially because like art, there's no volatility until the next sale. So it could have a volatility dampening effect if you were to include it as part of a portfolio. 
So that's nice. Um, it's probably relatively pro-cyclical to other, you know, risky assets, let's say. So maybe that would work against you, but absolutely the growth rate is there. Now it's interesting. And since you mentioned Scott, his uh, podcast with you, he, he had this idea where, or well, he's, he studied the data. And if you were to buy a Rembrandt, this is his example for $20 million, the expectation is, is that it will grow with inflation over the next, let's say 20 years. And that is really because the, the um, value of a Rembrandt is well known. So there's not going to be a new change in investor expectations for that. And that's why it would be linked to inflation. Right. Now, if you wanted to really capture the beta to the art market in general, just whatever the appreciation is at the, at the widest level, then you, he suggests, would want to incorporate a recency bias. So what is hotter now, what is cooler now? And that's where you might actually get something where if you think about the, um, you know, air quotes, growth expectations of that particular brand or that artist or that product, you might actually get a mispricing such that the market expects the value to increase by 10%, but it turns out that it does increase by 15% and you've captured that extra value, be it, you know, either in line with the art market or even um, creating alpha, I guess, against the benchmark of the art market. Right. So if you apply that same concept to whiskey, what we've seen is that the ultra rare, ultra luxury, ultra high end whiskeys have actually been the ones that are driving the appreciation. So even, even today, the ones that are priced in the three to $50,000 per bottle range, those are the ones that are driving the beta of the market. So at the low end, not the low end in terms of pricing at the low end, just in terms of, uh, let's say relative randomness, because there are hundreds of Scotch distilleries. Many of them are hundreds of years old. So there are plenty where an older vintage bottling, even from the sixties might be, you know, six, 800, 1200, 1400 bucks, but it's, it's not really appreciating in a, in a real way, but you have certain, uh, brand distilleries, let's say Bowmore or McAllen particularly, or ones that are just, um, you know, recognized as being uniquely good. Those bottles have increased just tremendously. I mean, uh, you know, like stuff that was two, 300 bucks in 2010 is five, $6,000 now. Wow. So part of getting the, the investment strategy right is really focusing on those those products and and just to kind of um you know create a contrast between uh scott's idea of recency bias this is the reverse it's like old bias where if you have something that's a known quantity and it's vintage 60s 70s 80s and it comes in all the original box and you know whatever other stuff it came with those are really valuable and, and again if you're looking at it in terms of scarcity it's as scarce as really, you know, might even be a, a bottle of one. I've, I've seen some bottles where the global market, to the extent that I've tracked them, is like five bottles. And wow. these are these are not the ones that are the Macallans that already come out at 50 or 60K. These are like random bourbons or random scotches from closed distilleries that were always pricey, but they weren't necessarily scarce. But now the supply is like, the same hundred guys are trading bottles back and forth. Wow. Yeah. Cause it just gets to that level. Okay. So that's yeah. funny. So it's not like 
And that's where I was kind of thinking. I was relating it to art. I'm like, okay, so it's not like you're finding this up and coming distillery, this up and coming company that's coming out this new whiskey. It really is like you're, so you're still hunting for those old gems. But then if one of those old companies maybe comes out with something that's like this new, fresher product that's still scarce, is that kind of where one could find opportunities? It's, it seems potentially, you know, so it's funny you bring that up. That scenario that you highlighted in specific would be the type of thing that comes out already with a lot of built-in hype and is hard to find and probably overpriced. Mm. So to the extent that you're betting on future value, you could look at this again, if you're thinking of this in terms of portfolio construction as kind of a barbell, you've got the main, you know, blue chip type stuff, especially if you actually, let's just pretend for a second, you're deploying any real money into this strategy. If you needed to spend a million dollars tomorrow, there's really only so many places to go. So if you were to spend 1.5 million, you maybe spend a million dollars on the really famous, you know, Bowmore Black 1964 classic, right? Some, you know, McAllen um, Grand Reserva type thing, whatever. And then you move to the other side and you bet on these speculative brands that are speculative, not from the sense of quality or from the sense of um, whether, you know, people like to consume them, but that they might be valuable in the future. Okay. So not financial advice from you or from me, but what potentially could be some of those speculative brands for people to do their own research? Who, who, who should they start Googling? So if you're trying to align brand value, distillery value, and that certain, you know, sex appeal, one that comes to mind is Ben Nevis. Ben Nevis is wholly owned by Nika. Nika is a Japanese whiskey producer. And if you followed the market at all, you know that all Japanese whiskey is just priced to perfection. It's extremely collectible. It's extremely expensive. And um, there's a certain um, taste profile that they produce that is, it is somewhat unique. It's more floral and more fruity in some cases than the typical scotch. So Ben Nevis, wholly owned by them, is a primary component in all of their blends. And in some cases, a large component. So you can actually replicate some of the experience of drinking expensive Japanese whiskey by finding a Ben Nevis. And to give you a sense of this, a Yamazaki 25, I'm actually going to pull this up on my computer because I have no idea what they even go for anymore. <laughs> a Yamazaki 25, I see some prices online for, you know, $10,000. Yamazaki is a different distillery, entirely unrelated to Nika. But if you applied a similar rubric, you're talking about a seven or $10,000 bottle. Ben Nevis 25 might be 300 bucks to find an independent bottled version. So that's an interesting way merely for exploratory purposes to go and get something that is linked to a cool brand where I could, I could, and have seen the value of some of these Ben Nevis, Ben Nevi, whatever the <laughs> pluralization is, those have appreciated pretty, pretty markedly in the last three to five years. And I could see that persisting. If you wanted to go with something that did not have this luxury brand value, there is a distillery called Le Chig, which is spelled L-E-D-A-I-G. And they have produced a spate of sherry cask matured uh, scotch in kind of the 11 to 15 year range. They're usually bottled by an independent producer. Those part, those are phenomenal scotches and they have been swooped up by collectors, but they're still relatively accessible. Let me try and think of a bourbon example. I feel like 
the uh, trying to think of the good the good bets is hard because really, really the best bet is to bet on the brand, and that just that just feels like less fun, you know. Right. <laughs> I think if you just if if you wanted to create a portfolio of bourbons that are not crazy expensive that would appreciate, you want to look at the blue chip producers, which are basically Wild Turkey, Four Roses. Buffalo Trace, and you would want to find either the occasional limited editions that they release, which at this point are hard to get, but they're still reasonably affordable. Hunting for the Grail. Hunting for the Grail. Actually, you know what? I can give you a specific recommendation that I'll totally ruin for myself and others who appreciate this one in particular. Yeah, not formal financial advice from us, of course, but you know, not, just, just not, thoughts, not, just thoughts. Not financial advice, but... I am willing to put my reputation behind you enjoying this if you try. All right, it. I like so, that. Four Roses, like all of the other major distilleries, produces an annual limited edition bottling. So for Buffalo Trace, they have the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection. Those are very collectible and routinely delicious. You know, some years better than others, but overall very good. Uh, Pappy Van Winkle, that whole line is an annual release, comes out in the fall. Good luck getting one of those, but if you want to pay up, you know, they're there. <laughs> so what is mispriced? What is sitting there collecting dust, unloved, forlorn, that is phenomenal? That is the Four Roses Limited Editions, which come out likewise in the fall every year. I'm looking it up right and now. And yeah, seriously, go go online and buy one. They're $400 at most. $499 totally worth it. is what I'm seeing. So that's a little expensive. Um, you can... You can actually buy them in Europe. There's there's an interesting um, preferences mismatch where people in Europe tend to prefer scotch and people in the United States tend to prefer bourbon. So there are instances where a collectible scotch sells out instantly in Europe, but it languishes on the shelves here and it's easy to find at MSRP. And then the reverse is true for some bourbons in Europe. So if you look in the United Kingdom, Particularly, there are retailers who are selling it even after the pretty onerous shipping expense of overseas shipping for something around 300, 320 bucks. And that's a good buy. And I'll tell you why it's a good buy. Those bottles are numbered. So the US number count on the 2020, which I am fortunate enough to have done a vertical of 2014 through 2020. 2020 was the best year. And I, that's, I'm standing by that firmly. So you're getting the best year. And because it's the most recent vintage, it's cheaper. If you were to go back and look for like a, you know, 2013, which was an anniversary bottle, those are, you know, like $1,400 or something wild. Wow. So 2020 is numbered up through, I think, 11,000. And then the 2020 Europe version, because that comes in a 700 milliliter bottle and the US standard size is 750. Those are hand numbered up to, I think, 3,500. So if you put them together, they produced 14,000 bottles of this for a global market for the entire year. And to compare that with something like Pappy Van Winkle, they don't disclose the amount of Pappy Van Winkle that they produce, but it's, it is probably close to 100,000 bottles across the entire line. So just as, and you know, again, there's going to be different scarcity between Pappy 23 and 10 year, but nevertheless, the amount of 
George T. Stag that was being produced the last year they released the production numbers was something like 40,000 bottles. That's just one bottle out of the entire antique collection. So the point is, is that the Four Roses bottles are actually quite a bit more scarce. They're cheaper. They're still from a blue chip distillery that is respected and mostly um, appreciated among collectors, everyone. And, and they're incredibly good. I mean, just really, I would put that toe to toe with any bourbon, even the older ones, the Stitzel Wellers and the national distillers that I've tried. So wow. it really made a big impression in, in how good it was. Okay. So I'm, I'm on the website. I'm looking at the four roses. They have a 12 year old, a 19 year old and a 16 year old version here. Right. It's a blend of uh, those different, those different ages. And one more detail, Four Roses is unique in that they use different yeast strains and different amounts of rye in their mash bill. Wow. So it's like a the blend can really be a greater than the sum of the parts outcome. And that allows for an enjoyable amount of variation between each year's vintage because it depends on the age, of course. It depends on the yeast strain. It depends on the mash bill. So it really comes down to the quality of the master distiller's ability to blend and it's, you know, superlative. So wow. there that is just totally like a fun way of kind of trying, you know, the best of the best in one sitting. Wow, yeah. I'm so I'm a big bourbon fan. So this one, I'm I'm literally as we're talking, you're you're teaching me while I'm looking it up. So Four Roses 130th anniversary bourbon. Is that that one? That's the limited edition. Or is this a different one? Well, the hundred the hundred thirtieth is the twenty eighteen year release. Gotcha. So and that one's that not one even available. Will probably be yeah. I mean, it's like giving me maybe stores, but yeah, that's starting. <laughs> oh, that's it's, starting it's, at three ninety nine. It's just not going to be cheap, right? I'm in the middle of the Bay Area, and it just said there are none available. So that's pretty crazy. Is there a secondary market here, right? Like so much of what you're talking about is the retail, but like, yes. is, so let's talk about that. Where is there an eBay for whiskey? Like what's, where do you go? There, there sort of is and there isn't. So if you're thinking about, um, you know, products that consumers buy, I'm kind of struggling to imagine <laughs> a consumer product that's more tightly regulated right. than alcohol, except for literally firearms. Right. You're like, can I buy a gun so, off eBay? Right. Maybe you can. I don't even know. Yeah. Like, probably not. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what? This, it's, it's, there's actually a mechanism. So the government has set up a way to facilitate firearms transfers legally. And that's just, you know, you have to go through a federal firearms license holder. Right. And there is no similar mechanism for whiskey. So you're dealing with um, state, you know, local, state, and federal uh, policies, which are really is just a monopoly on taxation. That's ultimately what they're trying to control. And there's no good transfer mechanism. So there is no secondary market because it is illegal for a private person to buy and sell liquor unlicensed. Now, of course, that does nothing to really prevent the secondary market from happening on places like Facebook or in Discord. Um, but those are invite only. You sort of have to build up a reputation for being a timely shipper or not dishonest, obviously. And even then you're dealing with sort of all of the um, all of the uh, peculiarities of any gray market that could ever pop up, which I'm sure you could use your imagination. Right. If you go to eBay right now, eBay.com, and you type in Pappy Van Winkle, you're going to find 300 listings for empty bottles. 
and those bottles will be bid on at hundreds of dollars. So you're asking yourself, gee, why are people buying an empty Pappy Van Winkle bottle for 250 bucks? And the answer is it's not to make a decorative lamp or whatever bullshit they proffer about why they would be doing that. So there is a, there's an, I wouldn't say there's a material risk of fakes, maybe in like those uniquely valuable bottles or there could be, but um, it, there's just, you know, it, it's not, it's not great <laughs> if you're trying to hunt. So what are you left with? You're left with personal relationships. If I know someone that's a collector, I might be able to trade with them or buy from them. You're left with doing the old stop at every liquor store you see while you're moseying around town, just in case to see if they have something that's mispriced or mismarked. You've got auctions, which are completely just ready to be disrupted because they ha- they're charging a 10 or 20% you know, fee on both sides in some cases. So what do you mean? Like this is like a Sotheby's this- is like, uh, is like, yeah, like these the, um, huge whiskey bottles. I, I, I actually participated in an online auction that took place in Chicago where the hammers fee was 19.5% and there was Chicago like local sales tax, which was around 10%. And you had to pick the bottles up in person. So what what does that even mean? Unless you are spending just, I mean, look, you just do the math on this. Like that is adding a gigantic amount to your cost basis where it really, you know, sort of eats into whatever appreciation you might have hoped to achieve. Right. So, So, okay. So what I'm hearing, so we have this market of collectible slash investable items, whiskey. You can crack it open and enjoy it. You can treat it like an asset and flip it. This is a huge market. We haven't even talked about the market size. I know that you have those numbers. Um, It's extremely regulated, similar to firearms. But at the same time, there's all these people that want their hands on this. Let's not even talk about that. There's like no data on any of this stuff on pre-auctions and all that stuff. This is ripe for disruption, right? Yes. Where do you want this to go? Where do you see this going? Like, is this like, who's the rally road for whiskey? Is this like, like, what are you, what are you thinking in this space? Well, if I'm thinking big in five years, it'll be something that I partner with some other more successful and brighter people than I to create, because really the, the nuts and bolts are there of what the final product would look like. And to some extent, I have spent time and energy trying to build it myself, mostly again on a hobby level. Let's look at the idea of friction in a marketplace reducing access. We have a perfect like Petri dish example. Robinhood was notoriously charging zero commissions and that forced all of the other discount brokerage to follow suit. And what happened? Retail trading volumes exploded. Let's look at the card market. Let's look at something like StockX. People have been buying and selling cards and shoes on eBay or on Craigslist, but there wasn't a single source of truth, let's say, for pricing and for availability. As soon as that exchange was created and dedicated to those collectors, what happened? Pricing exploded, volume exploded. Because there is, there's this idea that more supply might hamper the price, but that's, these are like a supply side market. The more supply, the more actual buyers there right. are, the more discovery there is, the prices go up. You know, now there's all these things I can buy that I didn't previously even have access or awareness of. So how do you create this in the spirits market? Well, one, you get the data as best you can to create things that are sort of a commonplace in other securities markets. You want pricing, you want a good idea of supply on both sides, you want at least some way of benchmarking performance on a 
you know, let's call it security level and an index level, but, you know, bottle and group class type, whatever. And then how do you affect this? Because the custody and disposition is the real challenge because of the current legal environment. Well, it's not even an environment. These laws will never change. Just it is what it is. So how do you move around this? And um, I think there's a couple ways. One, you could create a way where the person is not selling you anything. You're just custodying it for a small fee and you can create portfolios of the custodied products. And that's how a way to monetize, you know, securitize that investment. So this seems highly saleable. You can go to random liquor store owners around town and say, hey, you have a unique level of access to bottles because of the legal three-tier system chain that mandates you to buy them from wholesalers and then mark them up for retail. What if you just kept one bottle and put it in your virtual collection and then other people could share in the appreciation of that bottle? Now, what I just said will absolutely get me booed out of every whiskey or bourbon forum <laughs> into perpetuity because they are they hate that concept because a lot of these people are, um, you know, with near religious fervor of the belief that these things should be consumed and the old days were better, which they were. In nearly every case, it seems like if you're a fan of nostalgia that going into the store, buying the expensive thing, it was 40 bucks and there was no competition was better. I agree. But that's just not the world that we live in anymore. So if you have a global market of buyers, you have a way for people to access these products and you have a way for people to share in the culture and appreciation of them. This is like me telling you the bad news you don't want to hear. Don't shoot the messenger. This is going to happen. So. I think it's unfortunate that it will cause a reduction in access for people that actually do want to drink and enjoy. I'm right there with you, but just being pragmatic about which way the wind is blowing, this is the this is how it's going to go. So you may as well be the one to help shape that future right. or that reality because it's happening. Right. I mean, it just is. So wow, yeah. I mean, it just seems like I mean, it's funny. It, it this whole time I'm thinking in the back of my head about wine. Like it's like this is happening in the wine industry already. Why? Mm -hmm. Why is no one talking about whiskey? Like, what? It's one of those things. It's almost like once again pulling it back to that conversation with Scott, where it almost seems like this like light bulb moment where it's like this seems like a easy yeah. opportunity that nobody's looking at. This is a good segue to another point that we actually discussed prior to the pod, which is how do you even assess the size or the age of the market? And again, gonna really leverage Scott's expertise here. So thank you, Scott, for giving me 27 points of discussion in this topic. Um, he's, he's saying, you know, you can look at art auction history for hundreds of years. Sotheby's has been around for nearly 300 years. And he's looking at that from the point of view of, wow, these guys haven't thought to modernize the process of data collection and interpretation. You apply that same rationale to the whiskey market. The whiskey market basically didn't exist before 2010 for all practical purposes because one, it was not collectible in any, in any real way, not, not in the same way. I'm surely, surely in some pockets, but not the way that it is today. And there was no, uh, there was a whiskey glut. So they had too much of it, which is an interesting topic, maybe for another day. If you think about, um, whiskey creation, it's like an exercise in how to create the worst asset liability mismatch business on earth. You spend all this capex up front, building, distilling, aging, storing, and then five or ten years from now, you finally get to sell your thing and you know earn the revenue that was, you know, the upfront costs were a decade ago. And if you look at right. feedback loop, because whiskey creation is totally an iterative process in terms of how well you make it, you're waiting a decade to find out if it's good or not. 
or if the if the, everything came out okay. So it's it's kind of this reverse craft market effect where the blue chips that have been around and doing this for 200 years are uniformly better than the guy who just popped up five years ago. Not to disparage anyone who's starting because you know everyone's got to start somewhere and the next right. future distillery could be opening today. But um, just in general, it's really challenging to do well. So you you again, you're competing against the best of the best in terms of their domain expertise. And that, you know, nowadays, the day something turns 12 years old, the second it's getting bottled for their 12 year old line. So, right. Like it's it. This is not the most galaxy brain thought at all, but it's crazy. And this whole thing, you're betting on what people did 20 years ago. And you're like, oh, yeah, 20 years ago, they had a good process. So or whatever, 15 years ago. And so yeah, now I'm totally. betting on that and that it's going to be good totally. with what we're enjoying today like that, even just from a data perspective of knowing what is what bottles are going to be really good today to buy, yeah, to consume can, or invest you, in. It's just so hard. Totally. And you can you can do a little bit of a walk forward. The bourbon boom, the whiskey boom, I should say, really began in earnest in probably 20 you know, the, the old timers will tell you 2010, but I, I think it really began to have legs in 2015. That was, that was from my point of view, really where it became a more cultural phenomenon. So if you think about the, again, the lead lag cycle, distilleries pretty much in Kentucky and in Scotland, many of them pursued large expansion efforts around 2012 to 2016. So if you add 10 or 15 years to the to those dates, you're kind of coming up with right now, in some cases, bourbon matures a lot faster. You know, a, a, a good bourbon might be 10 years old and that's totally well-aged. Scotch matures more slowly where it might need to be, again, this is very broad brush strokes, but let's just say 15 years old to kind of begin to come into its own. So based on that, you know, you're talking about now for some new scotch, for excuse me, some new bourbon to come online and, uh, you know, really another at least five or 10 years for the scotch equivalents. So if you think about how that might impact supply demand, um, right now there is such a huge imbalance that I, I don't think it's actually going to depress prices. So you'd probably have to look for the next cycle where they continue overbuilding, they continue overbuilding, and then tastes change or the market slows down and then you know prices kind of uh, dip back down. But, but just to, to uh, put a capstone on that thought, Stuff like ultra collectible McAllen, ultra collectible Van Winkle, if it actually is treated as a type of Picasso to carry that example, then it's not going to lose much in terms of its value. I mean, and, and the information arbitrage is crazy, right? Like yeah. you will have legs up. This is you got to You got to do your sub stack or something. I would I'm a subscriber. I feel like people that love Alton would be, too. Like if there's just such mm -hmm. an information gap here of you have to know yeah, well, distillery like, practices. I haven't even gotten into like, why the heck is this stuff in Kentucky? You know, I'll Google that later. Uh, you know, like there's just <laughs> so much to know here to gap. But at the same time, if Rally was to put on a, a an old whiskey on their platform, it would be like, oh, I could see how that would be a no brainer, you know, just like a nice wine or something. Yeah. Again, it's, it's hard, you know, I'll, I'll just conclude with like one thought. Yeah. It's hard because if a person loves a particular baseball player, they can collect that baseball player and be happy. But it's hard to know what you want to collect in an intimidating, fragmented, weird market like whiskey, where you walk in and there's 200 bottles on the wall. How do you even know which one you like? You realistically going to try every distillery and then use that one expression to represent the whole distillery? That doesn't work either. So it's such a wonky 
requires a lot of learning curve effort versus I could decide tomorrow that I liked LeBron the best of all and just start buying his stuff. So right. that is another, you know, if you think about how a software company says, we have to create a good user experience. How do we on-ramp people to our product and get them in the, in the game? Like, how do you do that? That's something I've thought about just in terms of sharing the hobby with other people or sharing the interest with other people. And it is definitely, you have to be pot committed to go through to figure out what you even like, let alone what to collect, let alone what might be valuable. So something to think about, but also you could see that that creates a barrier to entry in terms of how do you sell this as an investable asset class? You really have to just say, hey, we've got Pappy Van Winkle. Do you want to buy a share? Because otherwise it's going to be like over everyone's right. head. Or it's like, trust and, us. Or trust us, which which is also possible. I could, I could and have created portfolios that I think will capture excess returns in the market. But you just have to trust me that I did that correctly. Otherwise, you know, what difference does it make to you? Right. It's like rally so, with, with wine or, or what Vint is doing, right? Where it's like, hey, I'm going to trust that right. you guys are the experts. I think I totally believe in it right. as an asset. But uh, yeah, I like the story. Let's let's buy some shares of that, right? It's kind of. Yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe that's where we close is that the story is really what counts here. You tell a good story. You capture the person's imagination about the perception of quality for something they probably won't get to try and why it's culturally relevant and significant. And you've basically told the story of Renaissance art. You've basically told the story of a storied athlete and why you would love him or her. And that's like, that's probably the way to create a product around this at the end of the day. For the lawyers in the back, a quick disclaimer. You understand that by listening to this podcast, you are not receiving financial advice. No content published here constitutes a recommendation that any particular security, transaction, or investment strategy is suitable for any specific person. You alone are solely responsible for determining whether an investment, security, or strategy, or any other product or service is appropriate or suitable for you based on your investment, objectives, and personal financial situation. Please speak with a financial advisor to understand if the risks inherent in trading are appropriate for you. Trade at your own risk. Bum, bum, bum.